Welcome to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and in this episode, we're learning what time is the best time to eat for maximum weight loss, and we're also learning about anabolic and catabolic hunger, plus the lentil effect, which is also called the second meal. If dieting or losing weight feels so much harder for you than it does for other people, you definitely don't want to miss this episode, because that's probably true, and I'm going to tell you why. Now, I apologize, this is a bit of a potluck episode and a variety show. I'm going to expand or reference topics from previous episodes this season, so if you haven't listened to episodes two through six, you probably want to do that first. But on the upside, how awesome that all this research is coming together. In episode six, I discussed Dr. Panda's theory that artificial light led to an artificial extension of our feeding times, which, for a number of compounding reasons, he believes is a contributing cause to obesity and diabetes. Dr. Panda was basically saying, don't eat at night or too late, which seemed to confirm a piece of dietary advice I've been hearing a lot lately. This idea that you should eat like a king at breakfast, a prince at lunch, and a pauper at dinner. But then all of the intermittent fasting research said the exact opposite, sort of. I suppose you could start your feeding window to begin at breakfast, but with all the reading and researching I did around intermittent fasting, I definitely got the impression that breakfast was the meal you wanted to skip or at least delay. In fact, Zing Zeko, author of The 8-Hour Diet, he left no room for interpretation on this point. He wrote, let me apologize on behalf of an entire country full of fitness gurus, diet book authors, trendy nutritionists, weight loss clinic, and unemployed actors working in gyms. Almost all of us have been feeding you a line of bull, and we've been feeding it to you for breakfast. So how can we rectify this? Or perhaps the real question is, If humans are evolved to eat only a few hours per day, as the last few podcast episodes have heavily suggested, what hours should we be eating? That's the basis of this episode. Spoiler alert. Although these findings seem completely competing right now, they actually line up quite beautifully. Should you eat like a king at breakfast? Remember in episode six when I was talking about eating less frequently and how the habit of snacking can probably be traced back to marketing endeavors? That definitely seems to be true for breakfast foods. I'm going to explore marketing and its effect on obesity and our tablescape and foodscape in another episode, but for now, here's a quick history of breakfast that basically answers this king question. Abigail Carroll, author of Three Squares, The History of the American Meal, which is a terrific book if you want to learn about how our meals and food choices evolved, she notes that in the 1600s, Americans didn't really have breakfast. They ate in the morning, sure, but they mostly ate leftovers. What they ate for breakfast was similar to what they ate at all other meals. There wasn't this notion that some item was a breakfast food, the way we think of danishes, waffles, muffins, or cereal as a breakfast food today. In fact, they didn't even have waffles and muffins in cereal, but they did have toast. By the 18th century, lots of meat entered the picture. Often multiple kinds of meat were added to the breakfast landscape. Carol notes this was in addition to, not a replacement. So basically, they were just eating a lot more food and rich foods at that. It was very king-like. Breakfast then changed dramatically in the mid to late 19th century because of the Industrial Revolution. 
The Industrial Revolution changed our lifestyle on so many levels, but one notable change was that Americans got a whole lot more sedentary. And this caused a national case of indigestion. Everyone had terrible indigestion, which they called dyspepsia. Magazines and newspapers, all of it was all talking about dyspepsia, how to avoid it, what to do if you have it, and so on. This is when and how breakfast cereal was invented. In 1863, James Caleb Jackson invented granula as a food treatment option for his patients with chronic indigestion. His granula was basically wheat flour mixed with water and baked. That hard sheet was then broken up into clusters. But these clusters were so hard and rock-like that they had to be served with water or milk. John Harvey Kellogg developed his own version, and he also called it granola, which he was sued for, so he changed the name to granola. John Harvey Kellogg later invented cornflakes and some other cereals, but then marketers like John's brother, Will Keith Kellogg, got their hands on it, and the rest is basically history. The marketers said, hey, you have this dyspepsia problem, eat this instead. And since it worked, not because the cereal flakes were magical, but because people stopped eating like a king at breakfast, and because it was super convenient, it just caught on. So don't eat like a king at breakfast, unless you want indigestion. Should you eat like a king at dinner? That's definitely what humans did pre-marketing. Richard Wrangham, who you remember from episodes two and three, wrote, quote, Like every culture, the main meal of the day was taken in the evening, and it was cooked. A typical pattern for hunter-gatherers is a light breakfast and snacks during the day, followed by an evening meal. To elaborate this point, Wrangham referenced several accounts written by anthropologists in the late 1800s to attest this practice. Here's one of those accounts, written by anthropologist Jiro Tanaka. As the sun begins to set, each woman builds a large fire near her hut and commences cooking. The hunters return to camp in the semi-darkness, and each family eats supper after the darkness has fallen. Only in the evening does the whole family come together to eat a solid meal, and indeed, people consume the greater part of their daily food then. The only exception is after a big kill, when a large quantity of meat has been brought back to camp. Then people eat any number of times during the day, keeping their stomachs full to bursting until all of the meat is gone. I found this account fascinating, particularly the feasting part, which describes our modern-day Thanksgiving practices, at least here in the United States. And too, as an overeater, I must confess that I enjoy the feeling of an overfull stomach. In fact, part of my problem was that I thought I had to get to that uncomfortable point to be truly satiated, or I wouldn't think I'd had enough to eat if I didn't get to that point, thanks to all that magic calorie brainwashing I discussed in episode one. This also made me wonder, is the preference or desire for stomach fullness evolutionary or biological? This is where anabolic and catabolic hunger phases come in. If you read Eat to Live or have seen Dr. Furman's PBS special, this next part will be familiar. Furman says there's a difference between true hunger and what he calls toxic hunger, which is a set of detox or withdrawal symptoms most of us experience a few hours after eating. He adds that eating processed foods creates this toxic hunger and the desire to overconsume calories. Although I tend to squirm around buzzwords like toxic, I'm willing to roll with Furman here. 
It's no secret that Americans are chronically malnourished despite their oversumption of calories because the calories they are consuming, largely from processed foods, are devoid of actual substantial nutrition. In fact, this has been one explanation for obesity, that although people are eating thousands of calories, because those calories only offer fragments of nutrition, the body keeps sending out hunger signals telling you to eat more because it's still looking for the nutrients it needs and hasn't gotten yet. Another reminder that a calorie is not a calorie, as discussed in episodes two and three. But before we can dive into true hunger or toxic hunger, let's back up and talk about digestion. Furman says there are two stages of digestion. The anabolic phase, which occurs when you are eating and then digesting, and the catabolic phase, which begins when you stop eating and your body begins to repair and heal any damage. Using the car example, the anabolic stage is when you fill the gas tank up, and the catabolic stage is when you're actually driving the car and burning the gas. This lines up quite perfectly with the science behind intermittent fasting in episode 6. Zingzego had this great analogy comparing the human body to an office. If you want the exact quote, I read it at the very end of episode 6, but briefly, he says, Most people go into the office, they work hard for 8 hours, and then they clock out while the cleaning crew comes in, cleans up the trash, and repairs any damage. Z says the human body operates most efficiently on that same schedule, but if we're eating, working, all day, the body never gets a chance to let in the maintenance crew and the cleaning crew and let them do their work. So work eight hours, eat eight hours, same thing. The anabolic catabolic process also enhances our understanding of a key point from Rangham's energy theory of cooking, that the summation of cooked food is easier to digest than raw food, and that by cooking our food, we are better able to absorb the nutrients and calories in our food, which helps us grow better and basically inevitably evolve into the badass humans we are today. It's all about more efficient use of internal resources. The underlying theme or takeaway is this. Eating, or specifically digesting, takes a lot of effort. It's a big damn laborious deal, so if your body is busy breaking down food, it's not doing anything else. And that's a problem because our bodies have a long chore list way beyond just breaking down food. This is one reason why sleep is so important. We basically need a break from ourselves and outside stimulus. All kinds of important things happen when we sleep, like memory consolidation. But we also have to regenerate a new stomach lining every day, which happens in the middle of the night when we're sleeping, which is also when we are in the catabolic stage. Quick reminder, the anabolic stage is when our body is busy digesting, and the catabolic stage is when the body is repairing, detoxifying, and healing. Here's the problem. Most of us are addicted to the anabolic phase of digestion. We like to feel full and satisfied. We like to feel full and satiated. We also don't like to feel the symptoms that can happen during the catabolic phase. Symptoms like irritability, fatigue, weakness, and stomach cramping. Now I know what you're thinking. Didn't she just describe typical hunger symptoms or low blood sugar? And I'll get to that in a second. Point is, when we have these catabolic phase symptoms, eating again makes us feel better because it stops the catabolic stage. But eating again also stops the healing process because it sends us right back into the anabolic stage. And here's the double whammy. By doing that, 
We keep reinforcing this belief that the symptoms we felt, all that unpleasantness, were symptoms of hunger, but we weren't actually hungry. We're effectively rewiring our brains in the worst way. Let me back up and talk about these catabolic phase symptoms. Headaches, fatigue, nausea, weakness, mental confusion, irritability, abdominal spasms, fluttering and cramping in the stomach, all are signs of what Furman calls toxic hunger, which appear during the catabolic phase. The more processed foods you eat, the more severe these symptoms will be. The catabolic stage isn't supposed to be unpleasant, and if you eat appropriately and or intermittent fast, these hunger sensations will definitely decrease. You might remember in episode five when I shared my experience with intermittent fasting and that I used to suffer from terrible bouts of hanger and I would frequently wake up ravenous sometimes in the middle of the night and that all of that went away when I started intermittent fasting. My best explanation was that eating all day created a lot of shifts and ranges in my blood sugar, which led to those unpleasant feelings, and that by eating larger meals and less frequently, I stayed more level. I still think that's true and part of it, but I also think the whole toxic hunger from the catabolic phase explains it too. Specifically, by fasting, I was having a more complete cycle, which led to decreased symptoms. And I'll talk more about this in a minute. This idea of toxic hunger from the catabolic phase also helps explain why if you eat jelly donuts, you have a massive crash after and you feel hungry too, or why when I eat Twizzlers at the movies, I always feel hungover even though I didn't consume any alcohol. According to Furman, this is straight up withdrawal and our drug is food. There are huge libraries of research saying that yes, food is addictive, and some are more physically addictive than others. Cheese, sugar, and caffeine, for example. But Furman says this happens with pretty much all foods. It's just that the more processed the food is, the more drug-like it is. Meaning, when we eat processed foods, our bodies become acclimated to them. Indulging the addiction is pleasurable, withdrawal is not, And this happens when the digestive tract is empty, when we've sobered up, so to speak. As detoxification begins, you'll feel uncomfortable, and if you eat, you get relief. It's kind of like the hair of the dog, but with food. This is that toxic hunger Furman's referring to. He says, the confusion is compounded because when we eat the same heavy or unhealthy foods that are causing the problems to begin with, we feel better while the detoxification progress is halted or delayed. This makes becoming overweight inevitable because if we stop digesting food, even for a short time, our bodies will begin to experience symptoms of detoxification or withdrawal from our unhealthy diet. To counter this, we eat heavy meals that require long periods of digestion, or we eat too often and keep our digestive tract busy and overfed almost all of the time just to lessen the discomfort from our stressful diet style. In case I lost you back there, catabolism isn't supposed to be painful, but eating processed foods creates dramatic detoxification symptoms, which starts this nasty cycle of eating more because we think we are hungry, but really we're not actually biologically hungry, we're just hungry for some relief. So how do we stop this cycle? Furman's advice is the obvious, eat more wholesome foods. Stop eating food that's toxic. 
But intermittent fasting or shortening your eating window or not eating too frequently can help too. Your mitochondria, remember from episode six, those little clusters that are your personal power plants, the engine in the Prius versus Hummer example, Well, like all other engines, mitochondria generate waste, smog, so to speak, and their smog is free radicals. I'll have to podcast on free radicals some other time, but very briefly, a free radical is any atom or molecule that has a single unpaired electron in an outer shell. If that just flew over your head, no big deal. Here's what you need to know right now. The free radical theory of aging states that organisms age because cells accumulate free radical damage over time. I can throw a lot of fancy terms your way like oxidative damage and mitochondrial production of reactive oxygen, but all this really means is free radicals impede the function of your mitochondria. Sidebar, antioxidants, another one of those oh-so-popular buzzwords, are reducing agents to free radicals, meaning they limit oxidative damage from the free radicals. Vitamins A, C, and E can slow the process of aging by fighting the free radicals directly or by reducing the formation of free radicals. But there's a limit to their power. Popping vitamins or even eating fruits and vegetables naturally rich in these antioxidants is helpful, but it's far superior to just not have the free radicals to contend with at all. Think prevention rather than treatment. Furman says by eating more wholesome foods, that is, by not having a toxic diet, we won't experience toxic hunger symptoms, which are basically withdrawal. This makes sense to me. If you're eating a more whole food diet, there will be less free radicals and less damage to repair and thus less side effects. Bottom line. Like all other engines, mitochondria are more efficient both in producing more energy, which results in less fat storage, and also in producing less waste, which are those free radicals, when they're properly maintained, which you accomplish by eating whole foods from your meal plan and also by eating less frequently. Keep your head out of the trough, as my husband would say. Now here's where your understanding of the catabolic and anabolic phases meets with the science of intermittent fasting. During the catabolic stage, we have a chance to burn the glycogen stored in our muscles and liver from the anabolic phase, you know, when we were digesting and assimilating nutrients from eating. And that's happening because we're not still eating, meaning there's no fresh strawberries, and so you're finally having that pantry challenge I talked about in the previous episode. But, as I also said then, if you bring strawberries into the house and you eat them, well, the pantry stops being cleaned out and the catabolic phase abruptly ends. And here's another double whammy. Your body must complete the catabolic phase before you can actually experience true hunger. And this is why that whole 16, 18 hour the fasting schedule works. It's guaranteeing you finish your catabolic cycle. In case you're wondering, symptoms for true hunger are enhanced taste sensation, increased salivation, and a gnawing sensation in the throat. For a triple whammy, When we are breaking down our body fats, which is the goal for weight loss, those detoxification symptoms can get even more unpleasant. Cleaning out that pantry is very much a chore and one we're gonna wanna abandon midway through. And for a quadruple whammy, the more overweight you are, the more awful the detoxification symptoms will be. That is, an obese person is going to feel a lot worse going into the catabolic stage after eating donuts than a normal weight person would feel. 
And the more withdrawal symptoms you have, the more you'll be directed to overconsume. It's a vicious cycle. I think this explains why intermittent fasting can be so unpleasant for people, especially in the beginning, and why dieting and weight loss seems so much harder the more weight you have to lose. It isn't just that you have a long road ahead, but that your road has a lot more potholes and fallen trees getting in the way. Now for the second meal effect, which was formerly called the lentil effect. In episodes two and three, we learned that a calorie is not always a calorie because we absorb some calories better than others. My big example was oranges versus Oreos and how you probably won't take in every calorie of bioavailability in an orange, but you're probably going to assimilate every calorie in an Oreo. Turns out there's a lot more to it than that, and that eating certain foods also creates a lasting effect in your body that can dictate how much you will or will not absorb or store in the next meal. The lentil effect is this. The consumption of lentils blunts the sugar spike of foods consumed hours later at a subsequent meal. This happens because lentils are so rich in prebiotics that they create a feast for your friendly gut flora. These are those gut bugs I keep foreshadowing about. Anyway, those flora then feed you with beneficial compounds that relax your stomach and slow the rate at which sugars are absorbed in your system. Later research revealed that chickpeas and other legumes have a similar influence like the lentils, so now scientists are calling this the second meal effect and not the lentil effect. I also think it's pretty reasonable to assume it's not just beans and lentils that are magic, that any sort of low glycemic meal can have a positive effect on your blood sugar both at that meal and then again in a subsequent meal. Citing one study from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, quote, breakfast carbohydrate tolerance is improved when low GI foods are eaten the previous evening. So what action can we take from this? If you're going to eat something high glycemic like white rice, potatoes, or white pasta, consider having some beans or lentils with it. And you'll see we do this a lot with dinners on the meal plans, such as the fan favorite Big Mac potatoes, the cheeseburger casserole, and Spanish rice. Even some of our breakfast foods, like smashing beans on toast with avocado, or the very British baked beans on toast, those are great examples of doing this. And then breakfast burritos, I can't help but think about breakfast burritos, either vegan ones with refried beans or tofu scramble or vegetarian ones with eggs and beans. These are really, really popular and partly because people feel that they're so filling. And I think this might explain why. It doesn't just taste good, but we feel good from it, from the boost of the carbohydrates, but then the legumes are there to keep it kind of stable. Lots to think about. You've been listening to Shortcut to Slim, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. Download your free, research-based, seven-day meal plan at GetMealPlans.com and leave the guesswork and science to me. I'll be back next week with the final episode of the season answering the question, are some of us meant to be fat? Is there obesity by design and have we evolved or adapted to obesity?